Hi. Um, I thank you, uh, Lewis, for uh, meeting with me to review the book Queer Trans Madness by Merrick Piling, which just came out actually a couple of months ago. There's actually a book release party today at three o'clock I'm going to go to. So um, it's kind of fun to read a book hot off the presses. And part of the reason why I want to discuss it with you and hopefully make this useful for um, the uh, Coyote uh, podcast series was because I think that this book has a lot to do with, uh, or has a lot of at least intersects with the notion about decolonizing medicine. And um, so I'm gonna sort of present what the book was about. And then I figure that, you know, toward the end of this 15 minutes that we might discuss ways in which it seems to maybe have some connection to decolonizing and maybe some ways in which it doesn't, um, you know, so we can offer some critique. But um, so essentially uh, Merrick uh, Daniel Piling uh, is a professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Windsor. And the book is um, published by Paul Grave. And um, I did figure that just for a second, I would show, um, at least the cover so that people have some sort of a reference if they wanted to look it up. Um, not that that's even necessary, but, uh, oh, I guess I can't do it while you're doing it. That's okay, I can show it at the end. But the full title is Queer and Trans Madness, Struggles for Social Justice. And essentially this book came out of about seven years of work, um, which included interviewing um, 15 uh, BIPOC, um, you know, uh, trans and queer folk um, who were people of color. And then another study that, inter that looked at what was called studying up or looking at medical chart texts for analysis that were related to um, uh, members of the two-spirit LGBTQ uh, population seeking services in psychiatric care. And um, it's pretty interesting. I think the reason why this book resonates for me is because fundamentally the, the subtitle about the struggle for social justice, and this goes along with a lot of things that we've talked about over the years as a critique of psychiatry, um, but uh, you know more about that in a minute. Um, and uh, most of the interviews were done between 2010 and 2012 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and Toronto. And um, they were sort of pulled together uh, during that time when the author had taken over a course about mad studies or uh, mad people's history um, and taught that at York University. And sort of the point of it all goes to what one of the founders of mad studies, LeFrancois calls the critique and transcendence of what are called psi-centered ways of thinking, behaving and relating and being. And psi-centered relates to the psi-complex, which are all people who sort of accept um, you know, the center of uh, psychiatric care or mental health services as they've you know, traditionally um, been um, organized. And the goal of MAD studies fundamentally is to give primacy to voices who have lived experience of mental distress, and then to actually purposefully sideline those who consider themselves to be expert at such matters, even though they don't have um, that lived experience, or at least don't own their lived experience, if you will. Um, in MAD studies, uh, MAD studies folks are sort of ill at ease with this notion about calling everything trauma um, or uh, 
referring especially what psychiatry, you know, as critiqued by uh, Zaz, um, you know, might call this chemical imbalance model or there being some sort of biomedical deficiency within an individual. Um, and uh, this all was um, uh, designed, um, like I said, this book came out of these two studies that were done. We'll talk a little bit more about those in a minute. But the reason why I think that this has a lot to do with the queer, trans, mad studies intersect has a lot to do with decolonization is because when you hear lists of things that are suggested in the book, um, I think that there's a lot of traction or intersect with ideas around decolonization. Um, you hear that the traditional mental health, uh, you know, sort of research model thinks about lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer folks as being at risk or uses what Brooks would call the minority stress model. Um, and there's several other researchers who think about minority stress. Um, but then also the problem of this is turning mental distress or the struggle to sort of fit into what is the mainstream um, as somehow biomedical or somehow a medical problem that then is uh, centered in an individual, as opposed to ever sort of addressing the more systemic issues related to that. And the biomedical model, um, you know, that individualizes systemic oppression, as, um, you know, McIntyre and Gibson and several others have talked about, has always sort of been a problem. Um, and then also the notion that because somebody is part of a, a special or unique population that they automatically have some sort of vulnerability because of that is, is kind of a, it's a huge problem. Um, and sort of seems to be structured from what came uh, from originally, like, don't forget that a lot of psychiatric or the state sponsored institutional interventions with people who have difference um, were about sidelining people who were different. And that certainly included people of color, that certainly included indigenous people um, and that sort of a thing. And um, uh, Piling, uh, you know, from this book has this great quote that I just thought, thought resonated a lot. Um, about something you've said. You, you've always reminded me, Lewis, that you were always interested in people at the margin, you know, the people who were exceptions to the rule and that that's you know, where interesting things can come from. And so I think that it's really important that um, in medicine, that uh, if we look at people who live at any sort of a margin, that they might have things to teach us about and reflect about the middle instead of vice versa. But the piling quote is pathologizing Pathologi pathologizing distress is not better than um, pathologizing identity. And so the notion being, of course, that being in distress in a society where it's difficult to fit in is perhaps natural and um, something that we should um, you know, think about a little bit differently than in a medical model where we try to provide medicines to people who are having a, if you will, a response to feeling different to the center of a society. Um, and then one of my favorite parts about the queer aspect of this is that, you know, one of my favorite definitions of queer came from Edelman in 1994, which is that queer represents sort of this zone of possibilities that if queer, if you go back to the historic idea, um, is, you know, somebody who's a bit different. Um, and I tend to like people who are a bit different. Um, and the goal is to challenge psychiatry to some um, extent, 
in order to be able to embrace people who are different and, for, and versus pathologizing people who are different. Um, so talk, of course, talks about this notion of damage-centered research um, and the problem with looking at somebody who is different as being damaged. Um, and the mere, the mad queer trans lens is certainly grounded within a broad critique of the biomedical model while looking at two-spirit LGBTQ folks um, and their dissonance um, as something that we can learn from. The uh, biomedical model, if you will, um, if you think about it sort of tautological reasoning, um, it sort of says uh, definitionally that if you don't really believe in the biomedical model of mental illness, then that might just mean that you're the one who's mentally ill. Um, it's sort of like, if you don't accept what the center thinks, then, um, then the pathology is within you as opposed to potentially within the center. Um, and we also uh, think about, um, you know, the MAD Studies movement fundamentally is about, as LaFrancis says, LaFrancois says, reclaiming disparaged identity, identities and restoring dignity and pride to difference. Um, so way back in about 2000, uh, Richard Ingram is sort of credited with coining this term about mad studies, which is again about centering mad voices or people with lived mad experience. Um, and I think that that is akin to the notion that we, uh, that it's important that we look elsewhere uh, for ideas and solutions um, in terms of addressing psychiatric difficulties. Um, and that we think about reclaiming the language and challenging uh, most of how it is that we theorize uh, about how it is that people have distress so that we can better be able to resist that. Um, and, you know, a lot of times people talk about, you know, if the center is sanest, cis heteronormative, racist, oppressive, you know, is being on the fringe really all that bad? And there's a segment in the book that talks about the lunatic fringe. And um, maybe that's not such a bad place to be, um, you know, given sort of what the center of it all is. And to never forget that a lot of oppression in psychiatry and medicine has certainly been racialized from how it is that we've come up with treatment algorithms to, um, uh, you know, silencing women's voices I think back, Lewis, to the time that you took the, uh, you know, women in psychiatry course at the University of Maine. And, you know, you came back for weeks on fire about like, you know, the history of all of this is not really that pretty. Um, and, you know, this book sort of reminds us of that. Um, and then it's also true that, you know, there's this critique, if you will, uh, you know, the first DSM came out in 19, uh, 1952. Um, and in the first DSM one and two, homosexuality was considered uh, deviance. And it wasn't until 1973, there was a vote to remove homosexuality, but then they, in that same edition added um, ego dystonic homosexuality as a new construct. Um, and then also gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder. So it's sort of like, even though some of the language changed, um, it kept central, um, you know, what an embodied queer person um, uh, might be diagnosed with in uh, psychiatric circles. 
And Bayer in 1987 said that because of concepts, concepts of disease and health that are taken from and within cultural contexts in ways often that are hidden from view, the process of change through which certain deviations become normed or abnormal remains very difficult for us to discern. And it becomes clear only when historical social conditions permit, if you will, the piercing of the veil of what is considered to be natural by the center. Um, so the piling book, I think is important. So the, like he, the first couple of chapters are sort of about that history and um, you know, querying, if you will, sort of the look at mad studies um, by looking at the experiences of uh, queer and trans individuals. And um, centers their voices and looking at all sorts of issues that are outlined. Um, what he calls imbricated struggles or sort of the overlapping shingles, if you will, that make up the struggle um, against people who are marginalized and have been marginalized by psychiatry. Um, and queer theorists, generally speaking, have failed to take up madness or have done so at least disappointingly to LaFrancois or Diamond in 20, their 2014 article that says that whenever um, somebody is individualized or essentialized or othered, then they are moved into what's called a non-knowledge or an absent space. So anything that sort of removes somebody's voice or anything that sort of makes somebody or delegitimizes their authority about themselves is something I think that we should probably be a little bit um, nervous about. Holy, and I just realized that that's 14 minutes. Um, so um, this book is fundamentally about moving against um, uh, cis-centric or cis-normativity in terms of thinking about and centering mad voices to make sure that those voices are included. And I think that it makes a meaningful argument about why we should consider demedicalizing and making non-carceral and non-state intervention responses to not just queer trans madness, but to madness, generally speaking. Because as Eels and Peer said in 2020, the violence experienced under the guise of people being, quote, cared about, cared for, or taken into care, are just a few reasons that many disabled and mad activists have since the 60s tried to renegotiate, if not reject, what are the terms of their care. And I believe that these are many things that are very similar to what we have talked about in terms of decolonizing medicine. So uh, I'm gonna shut up now because unbelievably that was 14 minutes. And now we can just have a discussion and that will suffice as my book report, I suppose. How long, how long is our discussion? Well, uh, we, can, we can do a couple of minutes, I think. Um, but I mean, I would just, let me just pose this to you. Um, with this being sort of, you know, your uh, introduction to this sort of queer and trans intersection um, in terms of MAD studies, um, you know, does anything strike you as having a parallel to your work with two-eyed seeing or decolonization? And if so, what would some of those things be? Well, indeed, because um, we're looking at 
at people who are different from the, the conventional norm. And the conventional norm, as you know, is pretty boring. And, um, and yet the problem exists that we create these hierarchical structures to manage people who misbehave in, in conventional terms. And, and we don't have alternative structures, I think is, is the problem. And that's what we're trying to do at Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness, where I work, um, is to create alternative structures for um, people in distress. And I don't think we care if they're queer, um, trans, um, anything. I mean, primarily we're, we, we set out to serve indigenous people, but um, I know we're open to non-indigenous people, but so here's the problem. Um, regardless of where you stand on the marginality scale, if you attempt suicide, you're going to be taken to the hospital and you're going to be gobbled up by the psychiatric system. And we don't have another way of managing that yet. Or um, let's say you're um, shouting at your voices in front of the gap. Well, that's bad for business. And so you're going to be taken to the hospital and become part of the psychiatric system. And I, I think Michel Foucault really hit the nail on the head when he said that psychiatry arose as a result of the bourgeoisie needing to keep unruly people from the front of their stores when the middle class was created in France. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And but so we have this problem where we we both want to rebel from the system, but we're stuck using the system because there's no other option. And um, part of that has to do with money, that it costs a lot of money to take care of people. And and so, and you can stop me if I'm rambling for too long. But so for instance, in Massachusetts, there's Gould Farm, which is an alternative place uh, for, for people who are struggling. And um, in Vermont, there's Soteria, a Soteria-like facility, an alternative facility in Burlington. There's a, um, a farm in Southern Vermont. I'm blocking on the name of it right now. There's Windhorse in um, Northampton, Massachusetts. So the cost of these places range from $20,000 to $40,000 per month. And conventional insurance and government insurance does not pay for them. Um, and so what do we do? And I, I think that's the dilemma 
that if we want to decolonize medicine, we have to come up with alternate ways of, of working with people who are in such severe stress that they can't take care of themselves. Yes. That, that they need containment, that they need protection. Um, you know, I, I saw this happening when I worked in Northern Saskatchewan. And the reason was you couldn't leave the community. There was only one way out and it was by airplane. Right. And Right. And so people would surround um, their relatives in distress and help them and protect them and nurture them. And in about six to eight months, they, you know, these people would, would be back to their usual state of functioning. And it was actually quite inspiring to see that a community could treat people, could help people without psychiatry. And you know, my job was just to sign their disability papers so they could, you know, have an income during this time. Right. But um, I don't know. I, I think that's our, that's our difficulty. You know, I, I glanced through the book. I didn't have time to read all of it. I, I spot read some sections and I'm completely in agreement with you know, the opposition to psychiatric diagnoses and, and all of that, that, you know, we need um, to be thinking about verbs instead of nouns. Mm. I just saw a tribal member um, Friday at the end of the day who had um, made a suicide attempt and didn't remember um, doing it, but clearly he had because he was in the ICU. And he was, he had been put on so much medication that he could barely keep his eyes open. And he was dizzy and uncoordinated and couldn't drive, could, could barely walk a straight line. And what could I do? He had a psychiatrist who, who was, he was going to see, you know, Tuesday. And I could, I could wonder if maybe he might want to ask that person if the doses were a little high, which obviously I thought they were. But, um, you know, there, there he is, someone who was, relatively alternative and traditionally cultured, you know, immersed in his traditional culture. And all of a sudden he's consumed by the psychiatric system. And there's nothing I can do about it. And like sometimes my critique of like a book like this or um, mad studies uh, although I think that increasingly as more writers from the global South and other places are writing about mad studies with a lens toward all of these things that it's almost not enough to just stop at psychiatry. I think that my, one of my critiques is that it doesn't include a, the natural world, I think as much as it should and B um, 
that it's not just about psychiatry, it's about the medicine, the medical industrial sort of complex. And because there are many diagnoses that aren't necessarily psychiatric or in the DSM, but like chronic pain diagnoses, fibromyalgia, now long COVID, like plenty of other constructs that have a huge psychiatric component that um, there's a great example from the book about the, a patient, Shannon, who um, was struggling with chronic pain and fibromyalgia, but then the physicians decided that um, without asking that this is a psychiatric issue without consent, sent the patient to a specialist who turned out to be a psychiatrist who then diagnosed her as borderline and somatic. And I mean, I don't know, like fibromyalgia versus borderline somatic versus just a mad queer woman. Um, I don't know which one of those labels <laughs> is more difficult, but I think it goes to your point about, um, you know, when the, you know, the proverbial, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If what medicine does is provide medicine or drugs um, so that nobody's too excited um, and hits every nail with, with those drugs, then without understanding the context of the patient, that that is a useful use of you know, queer and mad studies. And I think um, uh, you know, decolonization as a lens with which to look at medicine to go somewhere else. And um, well, we're now right. 25 minutes. So we should probably stop this part and then just keep chatting. Well, we could keep chatting for here. We could keep chatting for the podcast. No, yeah, yeah. That's fine too. Yeah. So, so um, yeah, I, I think that what, where we need to work toward is to say, that people, you know, to talk about suffering people, people in distress, and to, to have more phenomenological descriptions of their distress. You know, this person that I saw on Friday, he was caught up in the question of what does he have? Does he have the bipolar? Does he have PTSD? Um, and I said to him, it's not what you have, it's what you're experiencing. And you're, ex you're suffering and you're experiencing distress. And, and we need to get to the roots of that. You know, at which point he began talking about the conflict he was having with the mother of his um, son and her new partner, which was enraging him. Um, and I thought, well, this is a more fruitful conversation than wondering what you have. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. And, um, and while psychiatry will then say that he's not rooted in reality while it's sedating him, if you're able to have a few sentences conversation, you find out that he's firmly rooted in reality and suffering. Right. And, and he's so rooted in reality that he doesn't like it and he wanted to, to exit it. I mean, so um, quite the opposite of being unrooted right. in reality. Yes. Yeah, and, and you know, what, what I wanted to do with him was to work on finding other strategies for dealing with anger than um, taking, popping 
you know, pills, taking all your, taking a bunch of pills. And um, that's a big leap because it means going from the fast medicine to the slow medicine. Right, right. And and so I, I started off, you know, by wanting to teach him pranayama breathing, which is simply breathing out longer than you breathe in. I mean, not very complicated. And there's a free app uh, for smartphones called Pranayama Free that I use with everyone. And you, you can, you know, it's got beginner, intermediate, and advanced. Advanced is the longest expiration. And, but even beginner, you breathe out longer than you breathe in. And so I was showing this to him and his response was to say, well, isn't there a medicine that'll make me feel perfect? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So pranayama breathing didn't go over well. (laughs) But, but it's it's because he's been engulfed by the psychiatric culture. Yeah. Or as LaFrancois calls it, the psych complex. That, I mean, if I, you know, you and I have talked, lamented over the decade, really, about everybody who shows up who, um, like, the marketing has already worked. They know exactly what pill they want and in what dose. And, I mean, to me, that explains also, I mean, I mean, why people get high. I mean, being high um, is a great way to escape your pinch of reality for that moment. And um, why wouldn't people want to get high? And I think psychiatry is often a a path that people take for that, um, frankly. Right, because because if you're, because like, you know, the medication can make you go out of your mind. I mean, literally. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think you're right. And I, Gabor Mate talks about this, that all addiction is rooted in pain. Yes. And, and um, Matt Ball talks about dissociacosis, that, that we enter into other dimensions when this reality becomes too painful, too distressing, too horrible to stick around. And so when that happens, you either attempt suicide or you enter into another dimension and when you do that, we call you psychotic. But he says it's not, we shouldn't call, we shouldn't just say psychotic, we should say dissociacotic because he went there for a reason. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. Which, Ever since the DSM took out the, um, the list of ego defenses at the end, because people, you know, whatever, I guess they didn't sell drugs with it. But I mean, I will never forget that the, um, the, you know, one of the chief ego defenses, um, if you're really in a disorganized state, is psychosis. But if you're in medicine, you're taught that psychosis is just simply a disorder of dopamine. Um, right. And that sort of reductionist, uh, you know, neurotransmitter talk. Um, I mean, well, we could talk ad nauseum about that, but um, it's pretty reductionistic from somebody who's sad that they're not going to be around their kid. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where Matt talks about inter-narrative therapy, because it, within narrative therapy, you enter into the world of this other dimension, 
and and he says, you know, in essence, you go get the person and bring them back to this dimension by entering into the world they've gone to mm. and and slowly bringing them back, you know, by finding better stories that about how to deal with this world, this reality. And, um, you know, I mean, that's what my guy needed on Friday is a better story for how to manage his feelings about, you know, his son and the situation in which his son was living and this other guy and, and you know, um, these things can these things can be learned. There are stories about how to how to manage anger constructively, and you know, ranging from uh, you know Buddhism to traditional Native American stories to you know indigenous cultures all over the globe. Yeah. You know, we've we've all had to learn how to manage rage. And I mean, to me, this relates, you know, to things, I mean, I don't know, people roll their eyes at this reference now these days, but I still think it has salience, the whole notion about, I mean, everybody needs their hero's journey. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate, I mean, all, all the great movies from Star Wars to whatever are about that. Um, I think, you know, with the white lens, it's a little bit distorted as just the individual journey, but we certainly know that, um, you know, an indigenous philosophy that, I mean, there can't be an individual journey if there isn't really a community. And that includes animals, the spirit world, and everything else that we might be connected to. Um, I've got a story about that. Once upon a time, there was a British explorer who wanted to go to the North Pole. And he figured that he needed some locals to, to take him there. And so he, he um, went to an Inuit community and, and bribed them, in essence, to take him there. And so they started packing up the whole community. And he said, wait a minute, I just want the men. And they said, we don't do it that way. We would die if we did it that way. We take the whole community. If you, if you want us to guide you, it's everyone or no one. Because, because we'll die without everyone. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and that was so un-British way of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and really, that's what, what we have to do, is create healthy communities. And I think that's really hard today in, in our settler capitalist society you know which which focuses on the individual individual success you know individual um well just everything yeah I, yeah i don't think it, it cares about individual success as much as it cares about individual commodification um everyone needs a widget the same right. widget right yeah well and you know uh, the the new age um, psychology movement is full of 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 roads to enlightenment and <laughs> and you have to buy a new one every six months that's exactly right 
Yeah. That's exactly right. Which to me has always just said, it just means that they're selling us junk. <laughs> exactly. Man. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard problem. And, um, you know, I think um, Lisa Sakabase and the CEO from Wabanaki has the right idea. I, I hope we can pull it off of, of um, creating space protected space for people to be a little crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, it sounds exciting. And yet we still exist in the larger culture, the yeah. larger um, society. We can't ignore it altogether. And, and we can't make people stay. You know, they can walk away and fall into the psychiatric system get get re-upped take. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Re-up taken. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a challenge. Well, I piling and page one one seventy four of his book in chapter six just talks about the problems of pathologizing survival um, and hopes for the emancipatory promise of, you know, perhaps queer trans madness. And I would argue that um, that's rooted fundamentally in decolonization. And, uh, you know, he posits that, you know, just basically, you know, instead of dead naming somebody, like being careful, being mindful, actually listening to somebody instead of an algorithm, so that one might display skills like listening, respecting, agency, being supportive. Those just seem like simple requirements that are so easy to lose if you're in a system that um, has its own definition of everything. Um, exactly. And, and as we've said before, there's, there's no profit in listening. Yeah. It's inefficient for profit. Man. <laughs> you know, the, the contemporary psychiatric model is that it's all done by nurses and presented to doctors to sign off on the prescription. And, and that allows doctors to see a whole lot of people every hour. I tried. One, one facility, the physicians were seeing 12 people an hour. Seeing, I mean, they literally saw them. <laughs> Right. Seeing peripherally out of the corner of their eye as they go by. Yes. Yeah. I never, Noah Nesson once said that if he had two MAs, he could see 42 patients in a day for simple primary care problems. And it's in the decontextualizing of those problems from the individual and their context that I just think it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it, I think about the number of people that you and I have both seen in like psych observation units uh, who were jarred for real reasons, but we don't ever get to the real reason because we're like bipolar dopamine blocker, first choice, second choice, third choice, follow the algorithm. And I don't know, that's about as satisfying as a kick in the teeth, I think, but I don't know. It's, yeah, it, it's really those environments reduce our humanity mm. they they turn us into 
factory workers, um, you know, we're the means of production. We're the, we make the widgets. Right. Well, and quiet the people who object to participating in the delusion mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that everything is just fine. Right. Well, right. oh. um, yeah. Um, I can't thank you enough for this. Um, and uh, maybe we should close this and then talk about our next meeting. Um, but I appreciate this a lot, Lewis, and I hope this is useful for your podcast and um, my book report. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, thank you.